Good morning, everybody. Welcome. My name is David, and I am the pastor here at Redeemer. So glad that you guys joined us this morning. It is the fourth week of a series that we are doing called Logic of Faith. And if you uh, are new for the first time, what this series is about is uh, asking some rather deep, difficult questions and trying to explore how Christian faith actually gives some very logical answers to those questions and how actually even further in the person of Jesus Christ um, and the gospel, we don't just have logical answers, but very compelling reasons to believe. And um, we, the first week, looked at the question of existence. Why is there something rather than nothing? The second week, we tried to understand where morality comes from, where it's anchored. The third week, last week, we looked at meaning and purpose and how you can find those in life in, from a logical perspective. And this week, we're going to tackle the subject of suffering. I've really, uh, we only got one more week. I just want to say, I've really enjoyed this series. I'm so thankful for how well you all have engaged in it. Uh, I've had a lot of really good conversations offline. And I, I, this is the last week where we're going to do a Facebook Q&A. And I encourage you, if you have things that you're wondering about, want to talk further about, uh, text them in. You can go ahead and text them to that number. It's also the same number uh, in your bulletin, uh, and we will answer those. You can write me an email. Happy to have a face-to-face -face conversation as well. And, um, and I'll go on Facebook Live again. And if you missed this last week, we actually had a discussion uh, related to meaning and suffering in regards to depression and anxiety. Uh, one of the folks in our congregation did a really excellent job sharing their experience with that and how the gospel has kind of spoken to that and some of their journey. And, um, and it's, it, it was a really good conversation. I encourage you to go check it out. Let me also tell you, next week when we finish up this series, it's going to be totally different than the weeks preceding it. Uh, I'm going to invite three other people up here and we're going to have a conversation where you're going to get to hear some of their journeys to faith. These are some folks who love Jesus deeply and who have um, some intellectual horsepower. And, uh, and so they uh, have had a lot of these questions that we've been wrestling with have been part of their their journey to faith. And so I, I really want you to hear some of the things they have learned, some of the things that they've wrestled with, the, the honest uh, journeys that they've had to Jesus. And it's going to be a great conversation. You, you will not want to miss next week. Uh, um, okay, this week we engaged the question of suffering and how we make sense of suffering in Christian faith from a logical perspective that speaks to the head and the heart. And uh, we will get there in a moment, but let's go ahead and first bow our heads and pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this chance to gather, to come before you, to um, open our hearts and our minds, let, let, let our hearts be soft and our minds be willing to hear some of the things that you would have to say to us today. Would you help us um, see uh, where you are in the midst of suffering? Would you help us to see how good your gospel is? Would you help us to, to understand um, the basis on which we have our faith? And, and uh, would your Holy Spirit be at work in the way that this needs to engage each and every one of our lives, Lord? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There is a Christian thinker whom I have grown to really love named Ravi Zacharias. And uh, Ravi, at one point in his life, was visiting, a, uh, was visiting Poland and visited uh, the concentration camp right outside of Krakow 
that you're probably familiar with called Auschwitz. And I don't know if any of you all have been there, but this is actually a place where my wife and I have visited a couple of times because when we lived in Ukraine as missionaries, we would have to go to Krakow to get our visas renewed. And so this is a place that we visited, and, and um, it's, it's an incredible place. It is a terrifying place. It's uh, probably the worst of the concentration camps that exist. And this is a picture of uh, the train tracks that lead into Auschwitz. And that station, that building, is where all the folks who got off the, the trains were processed. And behind that building is the rather large uh, complex of Auschwitz, which is this big matrix of fields where people labored and streets and buildings. And as you go through it, uh, you can also see uh, the gallows where people were hung, the execution walls where folks were sh shot. You can walk into the gas chambers. This is a place where 1.1 million people breathed their last breath. Auschwitz is incredible. And one of probably the most um, breathtaking things that you see when you're there is a lot of the buildings have been repurposed to kind of, as a museum, to let you know what happened inside of them. And uh, there are leftover remnants from the things that prisoners had when they were there. And so there are rooms full of things that folks brought to Auschwitz that were taken from them. And um, so there's actually rooms probably about as large as this one, big rooms. And one of them is filled with suitcases just stacked up high. There's uh, another one. This one is really hard to look at um, of uh, children's toys and brushes and kids' items. There's another one that is filled to the brim with human hair. Um, just incredible things. And Ravi was standing inside of one of these buildings looking at, uh, looking at one of those things, one of those sites, and just trying to wrap his mind around it. And right next to him was another man named, uh, sorry, he didn't know him. He was just a stranger also taking it in. And at one point, uh, the stranger leaned over to Ravi and kind of asked a random question. He said, sir, can I ask, what do you, what do, you do for a living? And Ravi said, well, um, I'm uh, a Christian evangelist. I'm a preacher. I travel around the world making a defense of the Christian faith. And this man kind of nodded his head and looked at him and said, sir, I think you have a lot to think about here, don't you? And the first reason I share that story is because I, I think that man was right. I think that Christians do have a lot to wrestle with when it comes to the fact the reality of suffering and evil that exists in our world, the most frequent and perhaps most significant objection that gets raised against Christian faith is the question of suffering and evil. How do we make sense of places like Auschwitz and still hold to our belief that there is a loving and a good and a powerful God who exists, right? John Stott, another great Christian thinker, uh, expressed the, 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 the question like this. He said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to Christian faith and has been in every generation. And so what he's saying is this is a question that repeats itself every generation for all people because all humans are confronted with this part of our existence. Suffering and evil are enormous challenges to life, and they are uh, logical challenges to Christian faith. Um, 
But before I get into a response to this challenge, I think that we need to recognize that there's not just one problem of suffering, there's actually two. And, and what I mean by that is that there is a head question of suffering. There is the logical thinking, how Christians respond to suffering from a logical perspective. And then there's also the heart questions of suffering. There is the emotional response that rises up in us when we or someone we love uh, has this crash into their lives in a terrible way and we look to God and start asking the, the why questions, you know? Um, and, and what I think is important to recognize is that oftentimes our head and our heart don't always line up. There isn't always alignment between the two. I was talking to someone a few years ago who, who put it very memorably like this for me. She said, I know what I believe in my head, but there is a canyon between my head and my heart right now. And so I think what we need to do this morning is to speak to both the head and the heart and try to bridge that gap. And let me address the head questions, the logical questions first. Back to the Ravi Zacharias example. Um, what is the specific question of suffering that that man was bringing up? You know, he asked a rhetorical question to Ravi. He didn't intend for Ravi to give an answer there, but I'm pretty sure that most of us who have engaged this question know exactly what he was implying. He was saying this, if there is a good God like you Christians believe in, why, how did that good God allow this to happen? This thing that we're looking at in this room, how did God allow that? How do Christians, how do you explain the tremendous human suffering in the world if God is truly good and powerful and loving? That's the question that he's asking. That's the one that's been raised from generation to generation. And what a lot of folks have concluded regarding that question is God simply cannot exist. Their logic goes like this. Because there is so much tremendous suffering and evil in the world that is undeniable, this Christian idea of a good, powerful, and loving God cannot exist. These things are in conflict with another. They, they, they do not coexist at the same time. Famous um, atheist from today, Sam Harris, said it like this. Either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. That means God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. Take your pick and choose wisely, Harris says. And for Sam Harris, the answer is clearly God is imaginary. God must not exist. And I will say, if those are the only options that are available to us in addressing this question, then actually Harris is right. But the thing that I, I, I also want to make clear is that they're not the only options. There are very good logical explanations for how suffering and a loving God can coexist. And, and there's also a, a hole in the argument that's being made that I'll address as well. But before um, I get into that, what I feel like I need to do since it's been two weeks since we've done it is give a little refresher on very basic popular level uh, logic. Uh, I, I want to give you a reminder of what a syllogism is, okay? So if you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember that uh, a logical argument gets set up with premises and a conclusion. And so we said that all men are mortal, right, was the first premise. Uh, the second premise was J.J. Watt is a man, and the conclusion was J.J. Watt is therefore mortal, right? You see that? You remember that? Okay. What wonderful uh, thing happened after I preached that sermon was a young lady in the congregation decided she would write her parents a syllogism. And it went like this. Premise one, smart kids make all A's on semester exams. <laughs> premise two, Sarah's lowest grade was in 94. Therefore, the conclusion was, Mom and Dad, Sarah 
is smart, right? What an all, that is so awesome uh, that she did that. And all I got to say is watch out, mom and dad. Um, <laughs> I, s- I think that you may have a syllogism coming your way. It's like why you should buy Sarah a new car uh, that you should be prepared for. Um, but, <laughs> but if that comes, what I want to do is, uh, and this will lead into the later part of the conversation, but show you guys how you can respond to a premise um, a conclusion like this, and and that's by, um, if she says she wants a car, this is how you respond. I'm going to teach you what is known as the logical fallacy of the false dilemma. The false dilemma happens when someone argues that there's really only one logical conclusion when there are actually more options. Okay, tracking with me? So for instance, let me bring this down to a really basic level. Consider a husband and a wife are trying to go to sleep at night, okay? And the only problem is that the husband every night snores like a chainsaw, right? (laughs) You know, and the wife is just so fed up, she cannot handle it anymore. And so uh, she has tried jabbing him in the rib. She has tried pushing him. But no matter what, he just turns over, and five minutes later, he's back to cutting down trees, right? And so it is uh, a dilemma. What's she going to do? She concludes that her husband needs to go sleep on the couch. So she gets up one night, fed up, and says, husband... You cannot stop snoring. Husband, I cannot get any sleep. Therefore, you are going to go sleep on the couch, right? She is making a logical argument there, okay? Maybe not one that you'd see in philosophy class, but one that we deal with in, the, in, in I, I want to say, the real world. Uh, but uh, let, me, let me write it down so that you can kind of see it, and let me add to it some of the assumptions that are made. Um, If we could get that slide up, please. This is how the argument looks. Okay, premise one, husband snores. Premise two, wife cannot sleep while husband is snoring. Premise three, wife must sleep, okay? Premise four, happy wife equals happy life, right? (laughs) Conclusion, therefore, husband must sleep on the couch. Uh, I had a a guy who teaches philosophy in the last uh, message. He said, you know, that wasn't exactly a logical argument. He's right, but I, I, I think y'all get the point, right? There is some, some thoughtful things happening here, and the wife's trying to make a point. Here's how you know if she's made a logical fallacy. If there's any other option other than the, the husband going to sleep on the couch, okay? So can y'all think of any other option? I see some people saying no. There's no other option, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I heard earplugs. There could be a sound machine to create white noise. Husband could say, I'll do a sleep study, right? Uh, let me also suggest that uh, it isn't just husband that could sleep on the couch. Uh, okay, but you got, y'all get my point there, okay? Uh, so, so that's how you know that there is a, um, a, a false dilemma at play if you can come up with another conclusion. So more seriously now, let's look at the logic made in the argument uh, trying to disprove the existence of God through the reality of suffering. Let me chart it out like this. And this is how this argument works on a a popular level. This is what I have run into folks, and this is what they will say. Basically, the first idea is that there is an all-loving, all-powerful God who exists. If God is God, then God has to be all-powerful. There is nothing more powerful than God. And so the idea is God should stop suffering. He's got the power to do it. 
Christians believe that God is all-loving as well. As 1 John says, God is love. And the Bible gives this manifold witness that God's love is the driving part of God's character. And so actually the first premise is one that Christian theology really kind of upholds. This is something that Christians aren't going to have much problem with. The second premise is this, suffering exists. Suffering is an undeniable part of the human experience, and that is self-evident, right? And we're reminded of it acutely when we have to see and think about things like Auschwitz, right? So the conclusion is, therefore, God cannot exist. These things cannot coexist. Because we see suffering, and it exists, and it's undeniable, and I don't see God, and I don't know how a good God would allow this, the conclusion is God doesn't exist. And that's the logical argument. There are some nuances on it, but, but it's essentially this idea that, that, that people work with. And, uh, and now let me show you where it breaks down. Premise one, first thing I want you to, to realize is that just because God is all-powerful, that doesn't actually mean that God will do and wants to do and actually can do anything. Christian uh, thinkers, even from the very first centuries, have recognized that, that God, by very na nature of being all-powerful, by very nature of being God, actually has limits to, to what God does. And just to give you one example, very simple example, is, is here's something God cannot do. God cannot make a square circle. Okay, you see that? Because if it's a circle, it cannot logically be a square. If it is a square, it cannot logically be a circle. Those things cannot happen. God cannot do that. Uh, it's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. Just like God can't make a married bachelor, right? These, these contradictory concepts don't, don't make any sense. God will not violate that. It would be against God's character. And, um, and I really like the way that C.S. Lewis put this, uh, nonsense is still nonsense even when we speak it about God. And, and that's important to remember because we have this idea that if God was all-powerful, then surely he would do this. But there might be some contradictory things that would prevent God uh, from, from intervening every time in human suffering. So just hold that thought for a second. Take the second idea in the first premise. God is all-loving. Um, just because God is all-loving, that really does not mean that God is going to stop all evil and suffering. That is an assumption I think we would like to make. I think it's one that we would really want to be true when that butts up against our own lives or people that we love. But um, the, the simple way to see that is simply to point out that the most loving thing in a situation with another person is not always to eliminate all their pain and suffering. And you can think of examples of that from your own life. I, I think that one of the easiest ways to see this is think about a parent-child relationship. My little girl, Jordan, two years old, will slugs her brother, gets put in time out, and whines like the world is coming to an end, right, with all the drama of a two-year-old. And, uh, and the more loving thing to do is, for me as a parent, is to transcend that moment of her suffering and, and, not, uh, and not let her out of time out and let her think that this behavior is okay. Actually enabling the, the, the sin inside of my two-year-old daughter, right? Here's another example. My four-year-old son walks out into the street without looking both ways. The most loving thing to do in that moment is certainly not to just let that happen, but to discipline him, to let him feel some suffering in order to let him know the significance of what he has just done, right? If you have an adult child 
uh, that is headed in wrong directions, right, is making really poor decisions in life, the most loving thing to do is is not to bail them out all the time. And I, I think there's always uh, a discernment in here, but a lot of times it's to let them feel the natural consequences of their own actions so they understand the significance of, of what happened. And, and all, all that to say, all, all we need to do is point out one scenario where the most loving thing isn't the, the elimination of suffering. And it's really easy to do that. Um, <coughs> and, and what I hope that lets us see is that actually uh, suffering and, and love are, are kind of intimately related. Suffering and love kind of go together in some really important ways. And you know what else is related to love? A part of this conversation, vulnerability. Vulnerability is a key part of love. Brene Brown, one of the University of Houston professors, has really done some excellent work in vulnerability, and she has said this, vulnerability is the birthplace of love. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love. And anyone who has ever loved someone knows that to truly love means to truly make yourself vulnerable, which leads me to the other part of this conversation that we cannot neglect, that even I think like kids understand, uh, but free will. Free will is such an important part of the conversation on suffering. If God is going to create a world where you and I have an ability to truly love and to think and decide freely, then what that means is God has made a world vulnerable to suffering and evil. And because humans don't always choose to love, there is therefore suffering and evil in the world. Uh, God could have stopped all suffering and evil in the world, but God would have also stopped the ability for real love to happen. Because remember, God cannot create people who are forced to freely choose love. That's that all-powerful thing. It's, 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 it's a logical contradiction. It's a contradictory concept. Thus, if real love was going to be possible in our world, which is the driving uh, factor in God's character, so was the possibility and reality of evil and suffering. Okay, it, it, it's, it's a basic argument. Kids get it, but it's solid. Nobody has been able to, to, to speak to it, it any better than that. And so let, let me say, all that comes together to prove this is a false dilemma. This is not um, a proof that God doesn't exist, the reality of suffering. And, and if we wanted to, we could simply rewrite the logical argument on the popular level that gets made like this. If you could bring up the next slide. Uh, first two premises are the same conclusion. Therefore, an all-loving, all-powerful God coexists with suffering, right? If you were going to include the concept of free will, you would write it like this. <coughs> Therefore, God has given us free will. This is the explanation which created the possibility of suffering. And that's how an all-loving, all-powerful God can exist. And that's how suffering can exist. And I haven't even talked about um, the fact that we have a very finite vantage point, And there can be things regarding suffering that God sees that we cannot. And if you were going to include that idea, you could rewrite it like this. It would look like this. An all-loving, all-powerful, all-wise, and eternal God exists. Therefore, for reasons beyond our ability to see from our finite viewpoint, God allows suffering. Yeah, it is a woo. You guys made it. You survived. Um, let me show you also, actually, there's a little bit more. I, I want to show you the whole that is sometimes not seen when this argument is made, and it's also very helpful to understand. If you were here for week two, 
Uh, you were here when I made the moral argument for God. I talked about how um, be, because we believe that morality exists and we make a judgment that there are things that are good and evil in the world, we have to have a place to, to anchor that judgment. And, and, and it's uh, really challenging to do that without an objective viewpoint, without God. In fact, it's impossible. And so um, when you say, when people say, look at the Holocaust and say the suffering in the Holocaust was bad, when they say that is an evil thing that happens, what, what they're doing is making a value judgment, right? They have said that is evil. They have called it uh, evil, and they have to have a point, a reference point by which to make that judgment, right? Uh, and here's what's really important to remember. Uh, without that reference point, and if it's just me and you, there's really no way to say that, 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 that my perspective on this is right from an objective standpoint. Because remember, uh, people thought that the Holocaust was actually not bad. Don't forget that. There were people who thought the Holocaust was the right thing to do. Okay, we cannot forget that when we're thinking about these things. And these people had their own life experiences. They had their only reasons for believing that. And they got to the point where they said, this is what needs to happen. And if there is no objective point beyond us and them, you know, how do we say that the Holocaust was wrong and, and that killing is wrong? right, in the way that they did, we really don't have any way to, to, to justify that conviction. Um, it truly is might makes right. The victors of history truly do get to write how it goes forward, and, and, and that's it. But here's, here's the thing. Uh, if we want to say it's wrong, what we have to do is, is posit an idea uh, of God. And so let me bring that around to suffering, okay? <coughs> If we say that the Holocaust was evil and that suffering was horrible, we are making a value judgment, right? We are using language by which we objectively come to understand God. But here's the thing. We just, aren't we trying to, to say that God doesn't exist, right? So we're borrowing from the idea of God and saying that the Holocaust is evil in order to say that God doesn't exist. It's logically incoherent. If there is a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. So if, if you're going to say that evil and suffering exist, you cannot say God doesn't exist because you have no way to make that judgment without God. Y'all see that? Okay. I, I don't think that that's the conversation you should have if somebody's having an argument with you about this. But I, I, I do want to point out there's a logical hole there, and it's really important to see um, and, and what I think it ought to do is, like I said in week two, the fact that we believe the Holocaust was wrong, we have this deep conviction about that. It should not let lead us to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. It's some of the greatest evidence that God does. Because it, when we cringe at human e suffering and evil, it, what it tells us is that God cringes at, at, at evil and human suffering as well. Which leads me to, to the heart conversation that we need to have here as well. Um, you know, that, that's really where I think the real challenge is for Christian faith. It's not the logical elements of this. I mean, we were able to work through that rather quickly. I think the challenge is when suffering butts into our lives, when we, you know, hear something from a doctor that we don't understand, when we get news that somebody got hurt, when we 
uh, go and visit a Holocaust museum, and we can't help but ask why. And, and Christians do that too, and I think that's okay. I think there's space in our faith to wonder why God would allow something like that. Uh, and, and I th- know that there are people dealing with that in this community right now. I want to tell you, uh, uh, the lack of alignment between head and heart was something that I experienced to a huge degree the first week that we started this series. I had just gotten done uh, speaking to the mind about why uh, our existence actually points to God. And I got home rather tired, and I have this chair that I like to go sit in when I rest. And I got there, and my mom was visiting, and she came over and she said, David, I have some news that I need to share with you. (coughs) And so I said, okay. And she handed me her phone, and I read an email that let me know that a man named John Enright had been killed in a car crash um, just just a day ago. And um, John Enright was one of my first true mentors in Christian faith. This was a man who grew up running around the jungles of the Congo as a missionary kid and who went to northern Zambia and has done some of the most incredible missionary work that I think anybody is doing today. He is doing agricultural business development and doing fish farming and banana plantations and (coughs) pig farms and woodworking. And at the same time, he started a seminary, and he's working alongside African Christians to help continue to build up an African church. This is an incredible man who loved Jesus, and in one moment, his entire life was taken. And, and that's the news that I got um, the, the first day. And, and I, you know, just kind of an incredible bit about this from my own perspective. You know, I, I visited, I, I shadowed John for an entire summer um, the I think my junior year of college. And I was a young man who at the time was wrestling with the question of suffering. I had a good friend who was in a horrible accident who lost everything um, and um, is basically a vegetable now. And I, I had to make sense of his suffering. And when I went to go see John, um, Every day, you know, I got to follow him around and he would give me hours of his time to work through some of the questions that were coming up in my mind, to, to kind of uh, try to understand what had happened with my friend Jared, to, to figure out what he was doing in Africa. And, uh, and, and I can say that um, John really helped me. John helped me engage some of those questions in my head, bridge the gap to my heart, and, uh, and, and now... Like, you know, the last few weeks, uh, uh, I'll be honest, I can't help but ask God why. You know, like, this, th- there is so much that depends on John in Africa right now for the kingdom of God. And it's just like, it's, it's hard to wrestle with. But I, I just want to share with you all w- some of the things that John helped me with that have helped anchor me through suffering that I can't make sense of right now. And, um, and I, I want to do it by... Uh, helping y'all remember a story, or maybe hearing it for the first time from the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, a good friend of Jesus has died. His name is Lazarus. And a couple days ago, his sisters, Mary and Martha, have sent word to Jesus that their brother is sick and he needs to come as soon as he can or else he's gonna die. But when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has passed. It's been a few days. Jesus is late. And Mary and Martha are actually upset at Jesus. They don't understand why he didn't come 
when they asked. And so actually in the text, they're, they're, they're saying, why didn't you come if you would have only been here sooner? And what they're implying is, Jesus, we know you had the power to do this. We've seen you do it. We've seen you heal people. Why didn't you make it here in time? You know, honestly, they're asking the why questions of suffering in that very passage, right? And I am positive that Jesus could have looked at them and offered an explanation for why he did what he did. I'm sure he could have given a defense of his actions, but that's not what he does in that passage. And instead, the response that he gives when he comes up on the tomb of Lazarus is the shortest verse in the entire Bible. How does God respond to human suffering? John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So he comes upon the scene of his dead friend. This is the image of the invisible God. This is how we know the heart of God most clearly through the person of Jesus. And he sees suffering and he weeps. He, he cries like he feels the same pain that Mary and Martha are feeling at the loss of his brother. And, and what that does is it tells us like this emotional hurt and pain we have, God feels it too. Like, what is God's posture towards suffering and evil? The same as ours. He doesn't like them. He wants them to end, right? Which is why in Christian faith, the place where we set our sights when we are confronted with the reality of suffering is the cross, right? We fix our eyes on the cross. If you are dealing with the emotional problem of suffering, Fix your eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. Meditate on it because it is there that God speaks most clearly to the, the problems of suffering and death. It is proof that God acts on our behalf. It is proof that God is not apathetic or cold towards our suffering. It is proof that God cared enough to freely choose to enter into it, to take on all its weaknesses and to die on the cross for sins that, that Jesus didn't commit. Right, because he loves us to forgive us. You know, back to the Ravi Zacharias story I started with. Uh, after that man asked Ravi the question and he answered, Ravi turned the question back around on the man. And he said, uh, sir, can I ask you, what do you do for a living? And do you know, you know what the man said? He said, I'm a judge. I'm a judge. Ravi wasn't the only one who had to come up with an answer for the questions of evil and suffering. This man's job was to try to figure out in a society how to overcome these things. And, um, and you know what Ravi said to him immediately? He said, well, sir, I think you have a lot to think about here, too. And the reason I bring that up is because I want to tell you, it's not just Christian faith that needs to answer these questions. Every religious perspective, every worldview has to make sense of suffering and evil. Why does it exist? What are we going to do about it? What can be done about it? And I want to tell you my conviction is there isn't a single answer that holds a candle to, to the answers that we have in the cross of Jesus Christ, that God enters into it and forgives it, and that's not it, because that isn't where the story ends. Uh, let, let me remind you that, that the cross isn't even God's last word on human suffering and evil. Because after Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, he steps forward, and what happens? He calls out Lazarus' name, and the man who is dead three days comes forth and is fully and completely alive. Right? What happens after Jesus dies on the cross? His body goes limp, and he, his cold flesh is put into a tomb. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. 
right? And so the good news is even better than God simply entering into our suffering and pain. It's that God overcomes the evil that is in the world. Like that is the, it, it's the most incredible answer, one that we didn't even expect. It's not just that we are forgiven. It's that God is going to end all, all the sin in the world forever and has done it on the cross, right? We may weep at the tomb of Lazarus and at the cross, but there's coming a day when we will never shed a tear again, right? And that is the gospel. And what I hope you can see is that there is no answer to the question of suffering and evil like the ones that we see in the cross and the empty, empty tomb. It is logically consistent. It is emotionally satisfying and can help our head and our hearts bridge the gap to have a hope like no one that exists anywhere else in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for the way that you speak to our, our hearts. You can calm the questions of the mind that we can look at the death of uh, those we love and, and mourn and weep and know that you weep with us, but we can also look at their death and remember that those who die in you will one day rise. And I just pray that as we are confronted with this in our lives, maybe right now, or we continue to be confronted with this, and we all will, Lord, that you would anchor us in, in the cross and the empty tomb, that you would hold us near, that your Holy Spirit would, would never let us look uh, fully away, but remember, Lord, that, that you are with us and that you're not letting us go. And we pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.